Well, good morning. I'll call our meeting to order. It's good to see everybody here at Gospel of Grace. I um, I love you all. Keep my distance, so I've got a, a little bit of a summertime, I don't know, sinus infection or cold. Something I caught from Will. So one of the beauties about having kids under 10, you, whatever is going around at basketball camp, you end up getting. So I've got that apparently. But today we're continuing on in our quest to understand systematic theology. And we've been asking the question, are you a Calvinist? And that's a question that Bob and I get quite often. And what people are really asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of election? But when we say we do believe in the doctrine of election, we really have to say, yes, we're a Calvinist in that sense. So it's a very difficult question to answer because if someone asks you, are you a Calvinist? And they're really asking you, do you believe in election? We believe in election, but we don't believe in everything that Calvin says. So that's where we've been distinguishing between what we believe the Bible says and what we believe Calvin says. So last time we left off on baptism. Today we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. Now for those of you that have never looked at the Lord's Supper as far as different denominations are concerned, let me kind of lay out succinctly what different denominations hold to. Let's start with the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. The basic problem with the Catholicism view of the Lord's Supper is they believe in something called transubstantiation. Now, what is the doctrine of transubstantiation? Well, what they believe is that the elements, both the cup and the wafer, become the actual blood and body of Christ. So, in a sense, they're re-sacrificing Christ then every week at the Mass although they claim in a bloodless manner, as if there's some distinction. I don't know how it can be bloodless when the cup turns into his actual blood, but they try to maintain that distinction. So that's transubstantiation, that Christ actually comes into the elements. Well, Luther, as he was coming out of Catholicism, he was still struggling with some of the categories. He taught something called consubstantiation. Now, what is the difference between transubstantiation in consubstantiation. Well, not much. (laughs) In consubstantiation, the Lord isn't in the elements themselves, but in, around, and under, as Luther said. Now, the problem with that, of course, is it's focusing on metaphysics. Okay, now what do I mean by metaphysics? Well, for example, when we read that the Lord created the heavens and the earth, notice he doesn't tell us how he did it. So if I spend a lot of time trying to tell you how I think the Lord created the heavens and the earth, I'm going beyond the scriptures. Well, in my opinion, both transubstantiation and consubstantiation's longing to know what's going on within the elements goes far beyond what the scriptures say. That's not the point of scripture. Now, let me give you a third view, the reform view. If you can think of transubstantiation and consubstantiation as Christ coming down to the elements... The Reformed view is that in the Lord's Supper, the church goes to be with the Lord spiritually. So Catholicism and Luther say Christ comes down in some sense in the elements or in and around the elements in consubstantiation. But in the Reformed view, the idea is that we are somehow spiritually present with Christ through the elements. Now, there's a fourth view in church history. It was held by a man named Swingley. Now, Swingley was also a reformer who held a view that I think is biblical, and that is the primary reason for the Lord's Supper is that it reminds us what Christ has done. That's what it's really about, and I think Swingley had the clearest 
understanding of that. But let me just give you some quotes here that show that the Kelvin and also many of the reformers today, whether it comes from their creeds or the councils that they had, they, held, they hold to this idea that, yes, Christ is spiritually present with us. Listen to what Calvin said. This is from his Institutes. He says it this way. He says, quote, The essence of the supper is the mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout. Unquote. Now, typically, as Bob and I have mentioned over the years, when you see something secret, you should be on guard. Okay? Why? Well, how do we know this secret union? And what is the secret union that he is referring to? Okay, so let me continue reading. He says, The efficacy of the cross is applied to Christians through the gospel more clearly through the sacred supper, where Christ offers himself with all his benefits to us, and we receive him by faith. And then he cites John 6.29 and 6.51. He continues, he says, Drink my blood and eat my flesh. As, as if he says these things were said in vain, that his flesh is truly food, that his blood is truly drink, that none have life except those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, and other passages, this is still Kelvin, pertaining to the same thing, unquote. So notice, I think Kelvin misses the complete metaphor of when Jesus talks about eat my, eat my flesh and drink of my blood. That in John 6 is synonymous with faith. It is a metaphor. Why does Jesus use that metaphor? Because he's likening himself to the bread of life that came down from heaven. So just as Yahweh provided bread that fed the people, Israel, in the wilderness, Jesus is Yahweh who now gives himself. He was the bread of life. He is the, I'm talking about was the bread of life in the sense that he sustained the people in the wilderness, but he is the bread of life contemporarily to his people in John chapter 6. So that's why he's using eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Okay, it's synonymous with faith. Faith, by the way, he talks about twice in John chapter 6. The other problem with Calvin is noticed he confuses the idea that the supper somehow conveys the gospel but instead, I would say the supper is intended to remind us of the gospel. The gospel is what is believed, and the supper reminds us of that. That's why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we'll look at that. But let me give you another quote. This is from the Heidel blog. So this is contemporary and this is based on the Belgeic Confession. One of the things that Bob and I have reacted against is we hear oftentimes people will go to a church and they will sign off on a confession. And if people will deviate from that confession, they are barred from having the Lord's Supper. Well, let me give you a quote from the Belgeic Confession, which many churches hold to. This comes from the Heidel blog, which puts it on there. It says, quote, The Catechism and the Belgeic Confession affirm that remembering is important, but we also confess that with his crucified body and shed blood, he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. The Holy Spirit accomplishes this feeding on the crucified body and shed blood mysteriously 
but it happens. So stop there. Notice again this idea of metaphysics, that somehow Jesus' body is being crucified and being offered to us and somehow nourishing us. Now, they can't define how it happens because that's not revealed. And so because it's not revealed, what do they say? Well, it's mysterious. Well, I would say it's not mysterious. It's just simply not taught. So this is something that's just error. No, the idea of the Lord's Supper is not that somehow when you and I partake of the elements, Christ's body or blood is in any way in the elements, that somehow we're being nourished either physically or spiritually. That is not the point of the Lord's Supper. Let me give you another quote here, continuing on. This is the Belgic Confession. It says, In communion, we are fed by more than bread, wine, and memories. Notice they disparage memories. We are fed by the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. Well, let me ask you that. That's a Reformed Confession. How is that any different than transubstantiation from the Roman Catholics? It's not. They just have a different... So they have... The Roman Catholics have their magisterium, which is to be infallible. And here the Reformed have their confession, which is to be infallible. Well, what happened to Scripture alone? It's thrown out the window. That's the problem. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 23 through 26, we're going to look at how Paul understood the Lord's Supper as it was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. And we're going to focus on the importance of remembrance. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you back to the Old Testament, and I'm going to show you just how important remembrance is. Now, why am I doing that? Because the Belgea Confession says, it's, well, it's not just about mere memory or mere remembrance, they disparage that. But I'm going to show you that the idea of remembering is far more important than trying to have Jesus Christ metaphysically appear or be somehow in the elements. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Notice Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now stop there for just a moment. Does everyone see where it says, for you? You, I don't know if maybe you have a a version that says a little bit differently. But the for there, if you have a for, that comes from huper in the Greek. Now huper means on behalf of. Okay, now why am I laboring that point? Because this shows you substitution. So the point in the Lord's Supper is that the elements are not literal but symbolic of what Jesus did once and for all. We believe that Jesus died once and for all. So this idea that he dies is commemorated in the elements. When we break the bread, remember that his body was for us. It was a substitute, Jesus the just, on behalf of us the unjust, so that we could have forgiveness of sins and righteousness before God. So notice, we'll continue on. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, now stop there. Did Jesus say, do this because my body is in the elements? He could have said that. He could have said, because I'm spiritually going to nourish you through the elements. Or He doesn't say that. He says, do this in remembrance of me. 
He says in verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, so this is Jesus. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. When Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, remember at the Passover, the original Passover, there were four cups. And this comes, by the way, from um, Exodus chapter 6. All four cups are delineated there because of what Yahweh would do for Israel. So what the Jews did is they took their four cups of the Passover, based it on Exodus 6. The first one was the cup of sanctification, that the Israelites would be set apart for God. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. Why? Because they'd be delivered from their enemies. The third cup would be the cup of redemption. That yes, in fact, God would redeem them. Even though they didn't deserve it, he would purchase them and pay so that they could leave the bondage and captivity of Egypt. And finally, the fourth cup of the Passover was the cup of consummation. Now, what's very interesting, most scholars believe that in the Lord's Supper, when Jesus is commemorating it, remember, he's really having a Passover, Seder, with his disciples. But what he does is he finishes on the third cup. So the third cup, the cup of redemption, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Now, the reason that's so significant is, remember, when you have a covenant, the Israelites didn't just make a covenant with their God. God always cut a covenant. The Hebrew uh, phrase for that is karath barith. Okay, karath means to cut. Uh, barith is the covenant. Okay, so think about it. Remember in Genesis 15, Abraham enters into a covenant with Yahweh, or better said would be Yahweh cuts a covenant with Abraham. Now, let me just ask you, remember in Genesis 15, was Abraham awake or asleep during the cutting of the covenant? He was asleep. And who alone walked the blood path of these cut animals? God did. So he unilaterally says that he was going to bring about the Abrahamic covenant and the promises. Therefore, we know salvation is only of God. So when God enters into a covenant with his people, he cuts it. Jesus is saying now that that cutting is him. He's going to be the one who bleeds for the establishment of the new covenant. Now, one other thing I want you to see is if we consider the Abrahamic covenant is established by cutting, think of the Mosaic covenant as a parenthesis where you have the institution of law, which shows how sinful we are. When you get to the new covenant, it is the ratification and bringing to fruition the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? So this is why Paul can distinguish between the law as a covenant and the new covenant. Okay, if, if they're one and the same, he wouldn't make that distinction as, as we've talked about. So in the new covenant then, Jesus is going to be the one who is cut for the ratification of the covenant. And again, salvation is only by him, just as it was the Abrahamic covenant. Now, excuse me, I just got a cough. <coughs> we'll keep reading here. Notice right after that, he says, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice a second time, remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So notice here, when we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, we're making a proclamation. 
Now, the term proclamation here is often used for gospel preaching. Bob has talked about this, in fact, uh, the term Caruso and others that are used for often, uh, often for the gospel preaching itself. So think about it this way. You and I, as the people of God, are called to be those who are partakers of the Lord's Supper because it is not only a remembrance, but it is a proclamation of what Jesus did. So you and I are unique like Israel. Israel was commanded to do various things so that Yahweh's name would be proclaimed. You and I are to do the same thing. But notice also the proclamation is until what? Until he comes. So yes, we're remembering what Christ did, but we're also remembering and proclaiming that he's coming again. And when he comes again, he is going to be giving us what? The cup of consummation. Amen. That fourth cup. Do you remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed? When he takes the cup, he says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So what to me is very precious is, remember Jesus on the way to the cross. And on the way to the cross, he's offered wine. Now, I think there's two reasons why he doesn't take it. The first is Jesus goes to the cross to take the full measure of God's wrath. The term for uh, wine that's used actually has to do with the fruit of the vine. Okay, now, um, the reason I'm mentioning that is later he takes something that's called wine in your Bible, but it's actually a vinegar-gall mix. Okay, so you have to distinguish. So he's offered wine, if you recall, and he refuses it. Number one, because he goes to the cross to take the full measure of God's wrath. He's not going to have any sedative in him. But he also made a promise that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew with us in the kingdom. And I always think about that. Can you imagine the suffering that he was going through and how pleasurable it would be just to have a little wine in the mouth? And yet he rejects it because he says, no, I made a promise. I will, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. And so that will be the cup of consummation. Now, by the way, Jesus later takes something called oxalus or oxos in the Greek. It's a vinegar mixture with gall. And what that was, it was a way of, it's kind of like taking sniffing salt. Anybody ever see power lifters before they lift really heavy weight? They'll use sniffing salt. Why did they do that? It kind of brings them to, because sometimes they're gonna, they feel like they're lifting and straining so hard, they feel like they're going to pass out. The reason Jesus takes that is actually prolongs his agony. It brings him to a little bit more. So it, it, that actually prolongs the agony of the cross rather than uh, deaden the pain, etc. Okay, so very interesting. He rejects the one that would have deadened the pain, but he takes the one that extends it and makes him suffer even longer. So, brothers and sisters, what we see here then is that the Lord's Supper is about remembering. It is not about the sacrifice of Christ's body or blood. That is being read into the text. So why can't we just read the text for what it says? Why do we need from 1500... Someone to tell us, well, no, this is actually the body and blood of Christ that mysteriously nourishes us. And if you don't believe it, you're kicked out. Well, no, I can read. And I know that that's not what the text is saying. Bob. Yes, and notice also we're remembering and believing promises. Amen. So we're actually putting faith in the promise that he will come back and will 
consummate the kingdom, and we will have a marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. And he will drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. And I must say, the idea that, uh, honestly, when I studied these things in church history, yeah. it was pretty obvious to me that uh, Calvin, even Luther, they felt like they had to have some version of what Rome was doing. Yeah. Probably to keep people happy because they felt like they need something. Only Zwingli was strong enough to say, no, here's what it says. Right. I was debating with a guy. He says, yeah, well, look at that. Zwingli doesn't have any followers. Huh. I said, yeah, Luther does, and they're counseling people to get abortions down at the social services. Wow. wow good and the guy goes, oh, good point. I can <laughs> uh, There's no command in the Bible to create followers of a denomination. Amen. Okay, so you don't have to do that. And um, furthermore, let wow. me just say this. Thank you. Eric, Bob. this is great. Oh, no, thank you, Bob. But uh, <coughs> look at, now, as long as we're in Matthew, yeah. we go to Matthew uh, chapter 28 oh, yeah. at the very end where he gives the Great Commission. Oh. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Notice Christ is the lawgiver of the new yes. covenant. Yes, Not Moses. And then remember, there's that word again, yeah. I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus being with us doesn't come and go with the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Great point, Bob. He promises with us. So why tell people, well, when you get that uh, blood bloody wine, then he's with you. It's just playing on superstition that was inculcated into people because of pagan Roman Catholicism. Right. And then they're saying, you must submit to our creed or council or catechism or you are out. And so they're repudiating scripture alone, repudiating the priesthood of every believer. And every time I get an email from somebody, and I get one about every week, asking where my relationship is with these creeds, councils, catechism. Right. I said, these th- are not binding on the church. I believe in scripture alone and the priesthood of every believer. I never, they don't, they don't want to debate. They never say anything and I never hear from them. Right. I don't know if they go home and privately anathematize me or they go home and think, well, maybe he has something to say and I might listen to him. I don't know what they do. They never come back. <laughs> yeah. but I would try to force Lutheran and Reformed an Episcopal or anybody, I force them to uh, vocally repudiate the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. Right. And thereby repudiate the Reformation. They won't do it. I said, well, good. Since you believe those things, I won't submit to your creed. Right. Amen. Oh, these are ancient. They've been around. That's what Luther fought. That's right. That's right. Uh, I was just rereading yesterday the bondage of the will. And that's what Luther had to fight. Yeah. The fathers, yeah. the fathers, the fathers. Amen. And then Luther says, well, you think we can't know what the Bible said because it's unclear. And then he spent pages teaching the clarity of Scripture and that every believer can know the Scripture. You can know what it means. And you can believe what it says. And you don't have to have these obscure, contradictory fathers interpreting the Scriptures for you. Amen. So, Eric... 
I'm so glad you're my pastor. Oh, well, I'm likewise, Bob. And see, um, before you put the mic down, um, one of my favorite, everyone, uh, this is something you want to jot down if you haven't read this one. One of my favorite articles that, Bob, it's always hard. Your latest article is always my favorite, but the um, one was called Dining with the King. Oh, it's on the Lord's Supper. It's on the Lord's Supper. Yeah, what it really does say in the Bible is so amazing. It helps us understand. It helps us come to faith. Do you want to explain the idea of Mishta beginning in the Old Testament? Well, if you take the Mishta, which was uh, a significant meal in the the Old Testament. A banquet. Yeah, a banquet that would be thrown like a king would do it, or sometimes one of the patriarchs. And I went through every single instance in the entire Old Testament where they had one of these mishta, which is really what the Lord's Supper is. And in every case, some people were blessed and exalted, and others were cursed and judged. Yes. Uh, and if you want a great example of one, is the book of Esther. The book of Esther is one big giant mishta. And who was blessed and exalted? Mordecai. Who was cursed and Judge, Haman. Haman, right, amen. What happens at the Lord's Supper? Right. Judas, Judas is judged and sent out. Yes. And the disciples who believe in Jesus are blessed. Right. And so I wrote a whole article showing how the Lord's Supper is one of these mishta of the Old Testament. And that's another reason, the older I get, the more anti-creedalist I become. Yeah. And I intend to write against creedalism very soon, because I think I'm ready to do it. Um, Hmm. Why, if Luther thought in his day that believers could understand the Bible and even correct the Pope if they had to, and if he thought ordinary believers could correct the creeds and councils of the Roman Church, why do Reformed leaders today think Christians are unable to do that and command them to obey their creeds or be kicked out of the church? Right. I'm saying that you're going to have to answer to God if you do that. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to mess around with it anymore. I'm old enough to tell people the truth. Amen. Maybe a young Amen. guy could too. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't do that to the church. I've gotten emails from people who were browbeat and intimidated and told that uh, the church wouldn't even yeah. believe they were saved unless they voted to find out they're saved. And if they disagree with anything, they can't have the Lord's Supper. They're not allowed to have any kind of standing in a church unless they submit blindly and completely to everything stated in some 1689 Baptist confession. Yeah, I know. And I said, well, who has the authority to do that? And these poor saints, they think they're no good. They think that God's angry with them. They think they have no hope. They think they can't be part of the church. They think there's something seriously wrong. Somebody's got to stand up and say, stop it. This is not right. It's not from God. It is a rejection of the Reformation. And let's do something about it. And so uh, as long as I'm healthy, I'm going to keep doing this. Uh And dear ones, you're safe because Eric is just going to give you the Bible. Amen. And if he's wrong, we're going to tell him. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. And I I will receive it. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again, I'm sure. Um, Oh, yeah, Levon, I'm sorry. Well, when Jesus says, this is my body, whenever Jesus did a miracle you saw the results it was he told a blind man 
he could see, so yeah. he, he could see. Right, you, right. You look at the bread, and it's still bread. It's Amen. Still, you know, I could, could see well that. Well said. That's and a great point. Not Lord. only that, like in John 6, when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> well, that, right. he was still under the old covenant, and drinking blood is absolutely forbidden. So Jesus Amen. would not have told these great people to do point. something that is against God's law. And... Um, his, he was sitting right there, his body and his... <laughs> right. You're right. I mean, you can't have well two said. bodies, and you can't have the Lord's, everybody eating Jesus all over the world at the same time. It's utterly ridiculous. All you have to do is think right. about it. Right. Well said, Levon. So they took the metaphor literally. Now, yeah. that does not correspond to the author's intent. Who is the author of those words? Christ is. So, for example... When they say, well, you're not taking him literally. No, we are, in the sense that he wanted to be understood. For example, when Jesus says, I am the door, are the Roman Catholics going to say, well, he's a door? Yeah. So here's the door of Christ. And every week he turns into that door. Where he said, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. He's obviously using a metaphor. So when we understand that he's using that metaphor, because he's saying, look, I'm like the bread that came down and fed the people. And he talks, and the whole section about him eating and drinking of the blood is bracketed by believe. Uh, remember, they ask him in John six twenty nine, what is it that we must do so that we do the works of God? He says, believe in the one whom he sent. So the partaking, eating, and drinking is a metaphor that expounds on this idea of belief. They have to be with him just as they were fed spiritually in the wilderness. That is, or I should say physically in the wilderness, they are to be fed so that they have eternal life amen. by trusting in Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen. Um, oh, one other point I wanted to make about the Mishnah. I just love this article. What's interesting is, as Bob notes all the way through the article, at these banquets you have this reversal. Some are judged and some are saved. Well, this ultimately goes to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Do you remember in Revelation 19? You have the enemies of God. They're feasted upon by the beasts of the earth and the beasts of the air the birds or yeah so like Bob always says you're either going to be the food or you go to the Lord's Supper if you're a believer you're with the Lord at the supper if you're an unbeliever you're the food not for us but for the beasts of the, the earth so that's a great reversal that happens at the end and this is something that you and I are foreshadowing every time we partake of the Lord's Supper yes I had a I had a question when you were talking about the four cups yeah. And that it was based on Exodus 6? Yes. That, but I look there and I don't see any, I just see like family names. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, um, I'm doing. Hold on one second. You know what? I, I made that uh, off the top of my head. <laughs> I, I thought I was right. See, you already found that I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, you guys told me that I'd be wrong. I think it comes from how they First time this year. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know what? I, I can find that. Let's let's see if I can find it here. Oh, thank you. Okay, I got it. Exodus six. I'll start reading with verse six. Therefore, oh, tell you. the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I will I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you free you from slavery. So there, these are promises based on these I will statements. I'm on Exodus 6, 6. I will deliver you is the first promise. I'll shorten it. The second one is I will redeem you. 
with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Third, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you'll know that I am Yahweh. And then it says, I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. So the first one, I'll deliver you. So there were these cups that would commemorate these I will promises. Yeah, that's where you get the four. That's where the four yeah. comes. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. So Jesus already did the first three. Yeah, amen. He delivered, he redeemed, and he took them as a people because he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, at the end of Matthew. Yeah. You are my people. I'm your God. So we're already the people. But he hasn't brought us into the land. Yeah. And that's the consummation. Amen. And so some of it's based on what they did at Passover, but the Passover tradition was based on those promises in Exodus. Amen. You know what? I love learning the Bible. What do you think? Do you like it too? <laughs> Amen. Thanks, Linda. Great. Does that, does that help? Thanks, Bob, for being a quick draw on that. That was great. All right. Yeah, free coffee. That's right. All right. Now, I'm going to show you the significance of remembering in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, turn your Bibles to Exodus. We'll go to Exodus 13. And we'll look at verse 3. I have verse 3 and verse 8 on the screen. I probably could have copied more. But uh, Exodus 13, uh, verse 3, and we'll look at verse 8. And what you're going to see here is the Israelites are to always remember the significance of their being delivered from Egyptian captivity by the powerful hand of Yahweh. Exodus 13, 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, Yahweh brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. So that's why, by the way, I'll stop there. They had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so the leaven had to be removed from their homes, remember? Now, notice in verse 8, just skip ahead five verses, Exodus 13, 8. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Isn't that what we could say? We came out of the Egypt of sin, and why was it? It was because of what Jesus did for me. That's what we're proclaiming at the Lord's Supper. We're remembering just like they did. And so for generation after generation, they had their own supper. They had the Passover so that they remember but then Jesus, the fulfillment of all the promises, the true Israel, the one who succeeded in the wilderness for 40 days when Israel failed in 40 years, he comes on the scene and he says, this is the new supper. And you and I are doing it, what? Out of remembrance. So do you see then this idea of remembrance isn't to be poo-pooed? If you, if you listen to these Reformed confessions, they mock the idea that the Lord's Supper is just about remembering as if somehow remembering what the Lord has done is insignificant. Let me give you some more uh, data here from the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles to Joshua 4, verses 4 through 7. This is where they crossed the Jordan. How did they do it? It's miraculous. It's a miraculous intervention by God. Joshua 4, verses 4 through 7. And notice here they're going to place the memorial stones. Why do they do that? Well, to remember... Joshua 4, verses 4 through 7. It says, So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of Yahweh your God in the middle of the Jordan. 
and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel, let this be a sign among you, it says in verse 6, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of Yahweh when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. So notice the importance of remembering what the Lord did. Let me give you one more. First uh, Samuel 7, 11 through 23. This one is about remembering the deliverance that the Israelites had at the hand of the Philistines, that they defeated them. First Samuel 7, verses 11 through 13, says the men of Israel went out to Mitzvah. By the way, Mitzvah means watchtower, literally in the Hebrew. And it pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as beth the house of Kar, whatever, wherever that is. They're unsure of where that is, by the way. Verse 12, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzvah and Shen and named it Ebenezer. So here's what the stone means. The Ebenezer means this. Thus far the Lord has helped us. Stop there. Do you remember there's a song we sing? And I, I, I wish, anybody in the worship team? Well, they're probably all upstairs. Here but it, is my Ebenezer. Yes, here is my Ebenezer. And um, this is where it comes from. It's the idea of remembering thus far, what? The Lord has helped me. So if the Lord has helped me thus far, what can I do? I can trust him that he's going to help me all the way through my life. That just as he was faithful to the promises in the past, he's going to be faithful to the promises in the future. That's the idea of Ebenezer. And it continues. It says, uh, thus the Lord has helped me, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the day of, days of Samuel. So, again, the idea of remembrance is significant. It's not to be put down. It is all over the Old Testament. Yeah. Absolutely. And one thing is that we need to know. Yes. Is it isn't remembering in that sense of the saving acts of God. Yeah. It doesn't imply... The alternative is inability to recall. Yes, exactly. Because when they made the golden calf, when Moses was on Sinai, they, what did they say? This is your God who took you out of Egypt. Right. To the calf. Now, do you think any of the people who were slaves in Egypt saw all the mighty deeds of God, went through the Red Sea, followed the pillar of cloud, by day, pillar of fire by night. Do you think any of them literally thought that that calf was there and did it all? Good no, they, they knew that. There's a moral issue going on with remembering, yeah. not a um, cognitive one. Uh, is, is that the right way to say Yeah, that? I think that's really good. Okay, because if somebody's going to say, oh, remembering that's sort of weak and paltry. No, it isn't. Yeah. Because the, the possibility isn't that a Christian who's done this their whole life uh, is going to forget that the Lord's Supper is about Jesus. The forgetting is not taking it to be significant in my life and not believing the promises of God. Hmm. So when we forget the significance and glory 
kabad, is yes. that right? Yes. Hebrew? means heaviness. It weighs heavy on us. Okay? So it's not a small thing to remember because it means I'm living my life with this weighing on me about who I am, why I am. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What it means to be a Christian and that Jesus is coming again, that he's always with me. If those things weigh on us, powerful things are happening, and that's the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And so to belittle that is to not understand the significance yeah. of remembering. Because when Israel forgot, you've forgotten your maker. Right. Well, they could all tell you what happened. They just didn't like it. They'd rather do something else. Right, right. Well said. But yeah, that's a great distinction. So the remembrance isn't, as Bob said, just cognitive. I, there was a formula we used, to, we used when, we, um, when I was a pilot. We had something called an NDB, a non-directional beacon. This is something that is an old instrument. It's basically an AM radio station is what it's like. Charles Lindbergh used this. But when I was an airline pilot, we still, I, in fact, I did an NDB approach up into Canada. Well, we had a formula. It was magnetic bearing equals magnetic heading plus relative bearing. Well, the idea of remembrance in the Bible isn't just remembering that fact, as Bob is saying. It's about remembering the significance. So there's a difference between just having cognitive knowledge and having the significance, as Bob said, weigh heavily upon you. And that's the idea of remembrance in the Scriptures. So the reason why we do the Lord's Supper and we're not to forsake it is because it puts the promises of God in front of us what Christ did, what he's going to do. Why do we do baptism only once? Well, because the people in Noah's family, Noah and his family were baptized once. Okay, they went from the old world to the new and they couldn't go back. Israel's baptized once to the Red Sea. They couldn't go back. So the baptism that we're going to be having serves as a once and for all reminder, I'm with Christ. There's no going back to Egypt. I'm on the way to the promised land. I'm with him. So it's about remembering. The Lord's Supper is something that we do often to remember. We're always in the Word of God to remember. So this idea of remembrance is exactly as Bob said. It's the significance. Um, I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago, Bob talked about Rudolf Bultmann, this great German theologian. He could tell you oftentimes precisely what the New Testament said, but he didn't believe a lick of it. So he knew cognitively what it said, but he didn't accept the significance for his own life. That's the difference between have mere, mere mental assent and true saving faith. Remember in James, James makes it very clear that even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. The demons know who God is. They just want nothing to do with him. So mental assent is not what remembrance is about. It's about the significance, as Bob said. I'm sorry, Luann, I saw you had a question. Thanks, Mark, for... We got the speedy basketball guy there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, it was kind of just more of a comment to, um, you know, in church history uh, with the Roman Catholics, they were um, burned at the stake because they would not acknowledge this is the real presence. That's all you had to do is say this wafer is the body of Christ, and you would have been spared from um, burned at the stake. And that's what these people, you know, would not do. And so this term real presence has always kind of been, you know, it's a buzzword and you look for, and I think about growing up in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church where it, that was very conservative. And now in their bulletin, it says on their communion day that the real presence is here. And so we had found interesting a few Christmases ago where Greg and I had attended with 
you know, the family. And now Catholics are welcomed at that altar, but Greg and I could not go because yep. we would not accept the real presence being there. And That's so right. it kind of becomes more about unity and trying to blend and, you know, look like we're all getting along right. versus what Bob was talking about and being obedient. Amen. Luann, thank you. This is a great segue. In fact, that's what we're going to turn to next about the Lord's Supper. Because the Reformed even believe in some sense that the body and blood of Christ are present in the Supper, they do something called fencing the Lord's table. And I'll give a, I could get, there's so many quotes that I have. One, I'll give you a couple here to, to illustrate it. But the idea is because the cup and the wafer is actually the blood and the body of Christ, you have to, as it says in 1 Corinthians, they take the idea of discerning the body of the Lord. They take that as meaning you have to discern what elements are appropriate for the body and blood of Christ. But the real understanding of that text, as I'm going to show you, is that discerning the body has to do with brothers and sisters. It's the corporate body. And I'll prove that to you. So what they're doing, ironically, is they're violating Paul's admonition not to keep other Christians from the table by fencing it because they misunderstand what the scriptures say either deliberately or unknowingly okay so let me read you again fencing the table means that these reformed traditions these churches if you're a non-believer or if you're a person that perhaps uh, they think is sinful or you want to agree to their confession they will keep you from having the lord's supper and by doing so they think they're preventing you from incurring wrath and damnation. Now, let me explain where this comes from. First of all, let me give you a quote from Westminster on fencing the table. Quote, it says, um, I'll I'll quote from this part here. It says, Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, if they they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so that they are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot without great sin against Christ, remain such and partake of these holy mysteries they must not be admitted thereunto. Now, if I read the whole quote, they talk about people who have had sin in their life that they also have to be guarded and fenced from the table. So why do they do that? Because they believe that if they don't fence the table and people partake of the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner, they're taking damnation and wrath upon themselves but let me show you what this is actually about turn your bibles to first corinthians 11 27 through 29 bob and i have actually given messages about these warnings about the lord's supper and the abuse of it but it it needs we need to remember and remind ourselves of what they're about so first corinthians 11 27 through 29 so this is right after the institution of the lord's supper now before i read this let me explain what paul was angry about at corinth you had wealthy Christians who would eat in something called the atrium. I'm sorry, the triclinium. And the triclinium was something where the rich people ate. Well, you had poor Christians who were being excluded from the Lord's Supper. They ate in the atrium, the more public area. So what Paul was angry about is instead of having a Lord's Supper, the wealthy people were having their supper and excluding other Christians. That's what he was angry about. So no longer was it the Lord's Supper remembering what Christ did in proclaiming that he's coming again. But it became the wealthy people's supper, and it became a prideful thing where they sat aloof from the rest of the body of Christ. So I'll prove this to you. Listen to what he says. Verse 27 through 29, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So stop there in verse 27. This is where the Reformed say, Aha! This is why we have to guard the table. If you drink or eat of it in an unworthy manner, you're going to be taking damnation upon yourself. But read further. It says, verse 28, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, what does it mean to judge the body rightly? Well, the Reformed tradition would say you have to determine which elements are appropriate for the body of Christ. And you have to rightly understand that this is the body of Christ, either spiritually or physically present. That is not what the text is saying. In fact, one chapter earlier in chapter 10, Paul made it very clear when he was talking about the body of Christ, he's talking about the corporate body that is the fellow believers. And I'll prove that to you. Skip down to verse 33, 1 Corinthians 11, 33-34. What is Paul's remedy so that you do not take the cup and eat of the bread in an unworthy manner? What is the remedy so that you do judge the body rightly? Notice verse 33. He says, so then... Now, don't miss the so then. This is his inference. This is how you're going to not sin. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat... Make sure you have elements that are appropriate for the body and the blood of Christ. He doesn't say that. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's the remedy. Wait for one another. So if it's waiting for one another, what was the issue? Just as I said, you had some Christians who were excluding others from the table. That's what Paul was angry about. So you didn't have the whole body of Christ together. There was a separation. So whatever supper they were having, it wasn't the Lord's. It was the rich people's and their families, but it wasn't the Lord's supper. That was the problem. So the remedy tells us what the issue is. Wait for one another. And then he says in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Brothers and sisters, if the Reformed tradition was right... Those who fence the table, as Luann is suggesting, I've seen it myself, the Missouri Senate, the Lutherans, they'll fence the table and they'll say, well, you can't eat and drink if you're a sinner, if you had sin this week. You can't eat and drink of it if you don't sign off on our confession or believe this is the actual presence of the Lord. If that was true, then why does Paul's remedy wait for one another? See, the sad irony is the Reformed tradition is doing the exact thing the Apostle Paul warned about. They're excluding people from the Lord's Supper, saying you're not good enough, when Paul's whole point is don't exclude brothers and sisters from the Lord's table. And if we're going to say that you have to be good enough for the Lord's table, you're going to have two types of people. Those who are honest know that they don't deserve the table, and those who are hypocrites who think they do. Right? That's all you got. That's right, exactly. Yes, Brian. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a, a type of mishta. It is. The uh, people that you least expect then will be uh, uh, rewarded in the right. Amen. Well, oops, I'm sorry to do that. Uh, well said. The very yeah, it's exactly right. There's a and this as Bob shows in the article. This happens all the way through the Gospels. You'll have a woman. Yeah, the woman who wept at Jesus' feet. If you want yeah, to go ahead. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, one of the ones that happens in one of these meals that is purposely there to make this point is that Jesus is invited to a meal by some religious leaders, 
and they were offended by him anyhow. And so he comes in there because he had done miracles and he was significant and he was teaching. And while he's there, an immoral a woman with an immoral past comes in and is weeping on his feet. And so it offended all the religious hierarchy or the people who thought they were important because, well, this guy's no prophet or he wouldn't allow this. But the woman was a repentant sinner who loved Jesus. And ironically, um, actually, Kenneth Bailey probably is where I got this, or Joel Green. Yeah. She was doing things that would have been, uh, she's doing things analogically that would have been required of a host that they hadn't done, the anointing of the feet and so on. Yeah. She was doing what they had failed to do, but it's all irony. And so the woman who's the wicked sinner in their eyes yeah. is exalted. Yes. And the people who judged her are the ones Jesus is saying they really don't have any part in this. Amen. Well, so, Bob, you know, let me tell you that into something you've been teaching in uh, Acts. Remember the term Bob's been teaching is about decamai, receive? The irony is the house that Jesus comes into of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they don't receive him by giving him these common courtesies, anointing the head, washing the feet. This woman receives him because she does what they don't do. So that's what Bob is talking about all the way through the New Testament at a dinner you have this reversal. The, she came to Messiah, has salvation. The religious leaders of Israel, because they miss Messiah, they have damnation. Reversal. What are, where does it happen? It happens at the table. So when you and I are at the table, we're remembering, as bad as things may be, as much as we may be hated or persecuted, there's a day that's coming where there's going to be the great reversal when Jesus comes. And we'll be dining with the king while the enemies will be subject to him. That's what we're remembering. So, amen. Brothers and sisters, I know we're out of time. We'll come to some other issues next week, but I hope you can see the importance of remembering. Remembering is a big deal. So don't let anyone ever say, well, all you care about is remembering what the Lord did in the Lord's Supper. We care about it actually turning into the body or blood of Christ, etc. No, remembrance is far more important. Yes. Yeah, Dan. I just turned it off. I just remember my days in the Catholic Church, and um, I just remember the the priest in all of his garb and all that, just holding up this host or this chalice and using the words of Scripture so blasphemously, and in, in now that I see it, you know, do this in remembrance of me, and they're all looking at this beautiful chalice with the big wafer. Wow. And I'm just thinking, as you were talking about the, uh, you know, the, the golden calf, yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's like, that host didn't lead you through, right. through uh, to redemption. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that did. Yes, and do it amen. in remembrance of him, not this piece of wafer. And then they have all of these, um, you know, these, uh, these things that they do, uh, these constant, I forget what they call it now, but where they, they're always ador- uh, uh, adoration, I think they call it, yeah, adoration, yeah. where they have... 24-hour yeah, perpetual adoration where they're continually, someone's always in this, this area, this room of the church, praying to this host. Right. And it's just, it's so mad. Well said. No, that's very, a great point. very sad. And it's, uh, so I, think I know about, there's Catholics here, that, uh, ex-Catholics that can relate to all of this. It's, it's Dan, very, that is well said. Yeah. You're exactly right. It's such a problem. Think about what Bob said regarding Matthew 28. Jesus is with us independent of the Lord's Supper correct? 
But I also want you to think about, remember in 1 John, what is the confession that is valid? Those who confess that Christ has come what? In the flesh. So when Jesus comes again, he's not coming in a wafer. He's not coming in a cup. He's coming bodily. So isn't it interesting that Christ come in the flesh is a test of orthodoxy, not just for the first advent of Christ, but the second advent as well. When he comes again for his people, he's not coming in a cup. He's coming bodily. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself. I love that adjectival intensive. There's no stunt double, no stand-in, no surrogate. It's the Lord himself will come with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And he's going to break through. So that's very important to remember. That's also this idea that he's somehow present in the elements. It's a violation of the test of orthodoxy in 1 John. Christ come in the flesh. Yes. Um, Yeah, Brian. I, I wanted to just go back. I had a thought on when we were doing the oh, yeah. uh, covenant yeah. and uh, God alone walked the blood path. And yes. I think it's important to note that uh, no matter what man does, yes. he can't change God's covenant and uh, uh, God will not break his promises. Amen. Well said. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. When he cut the covenant, he put himself under the potential curse. If I ever go against my word, Abraham, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Yahweh will never go against his word. And that's what we're remembering also at the Lord's Supper, that that covenant has been ratified in Christ, it's been fulfilled, and he's coming again for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for these promises. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, that one day we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we've been spared, that we've been saved, we've been redeemed, and that you've brought us to to your table, Lord. We thank you for being a gracious and merciful king that even we dead dogs can eat at your table all the days of our life. I pray, Lord, that we would remember these things and persevere in Jesus' name. Amen.